hello, and welcome. I'd like to greet you and welcome you to this episode of the Traeger Method Podcast. Episode number 61 is what you're sitting in right now. That's what is going into your ear drums. The little drums inside your ears are tapping, rat-a-tat-tatting with the Traeger Method Podcast, episode 61. My guest today is part of the back-to-back Pete and Pete episodes, I promised, or at least I suggested might happen last week. This is the second half of that Pete and Pete thing. Last week, we had punk rock therapist Pete Normal, a conversation I enjoyed very much. I hope you enjoyed it too. This week, we have Pete Kramiak, return guest, bestie, fresh back from his verbal assault reunion tour. Yes, it was just two shows, but that's a tour, right? T-W-O-E-R, a tour. Now, some Traeger Method listeners may also listen to Dan O'Mahony's Dan O Says So podcast. If you do listen to Dan's podcast, you probably heard Pete Kramiak on it earlier this week. I have not listened to it myself. I do not know what they covered. I'm frankly a little upset about it. I'm a little pissed off that Pete went on Dan's to talk about these reunion shows before mine, that he appeared on that one before this one. In his defense, Pete explained to me that what happened was that Dan booked him to be on that podcast ahead of time. Dan knew those shows were coming, and he booked Pete in advance, which I think is a pretty low-down manipulative thing to do. Oh, how punk rock of you to use a calendar. Whatever, I'm recovering. Hopefully we have covered different material in this conversation. I hope Pete didn't talk with Dan about his overarching fear of shitting his pants while on stage. I hope that's exclusive Traeger Method stuff. If not, okay, whatever. But in all seriousness, it was great fun talking with Pete. It always is, even though we talked about a lot of dark stuff too. War, senseless destruction, authoritarianism, idiocy, rising autocracy, man's inhumanity to man, that kind of stuff. We still had a really good time, and I hope you have a good time listening to our conversation. Now, I'd like to do a great big shout out to Traeger Method podcast supporters. You know who you are. You support the pod. Ryan Berkebile, 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 new supporter. You know you support the pod, and you know how to pronounce your own name. I don't, obviously. Doesn't stop me from thanking you for supporting the pod at $5 a month. Patreon backslash Traeger Method. Anchor app, one time only through Venmo, Jason-Traeger-1. These are the ways you can support the podcast financially. If you can't do that, tell a friend, like, subscribe, give five stars, rate, all that stuff. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There's another way to support the pod that I've never mentioned before, but uh, I would like to talk about it now. You can come to Portland, Oregon to visit and take me out to see a show. Just invite me, take me out, pay for everything. That's one way you can support the pod, as did Traeger Method podcast listener and supporter Suzanne Leff. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for inviting me to see Gang of Four while you were here visiting from Colorado. It was so great to hang out with you. And that show could not have been any better. I talk about it with Pete in our conversation. 
talk about Suzanne too. Thank you, Suzanne, uh, Trager with the podcast listener, Suzanne Leff, for that really, really enjoyable evening out on the town here in Portland, Oregon. Gang of four were incredible. Pete and I talk about it though. I'm not going to go too deep into that, but I will say again, thank you, Suzanne. I really appreciate that. What fun. What is that sound? Somebody's doing yard work outside. It's okay. Maybe you don't hear it. Maybe you do. Who cares? I can handle it, right? A little weed whacking. Things have been going good in my life. I've been appreciating and enjoying my days, my evenings, my sleep, my life. Do you ever have anxiety pop up when you feel good? That feeling of like, oh shit, everything's good right now. Things are in order. Reality is holding in a fairly okay pattern right now. I like things. I'm happy. And then you go, oh, shit, it must be coming to an end, right? That's the way it works. It's a pendulum. No state ever stays, so therefore it's about to collapse. The better things are, the worse things are going to get. You know the kind of anxiety I'm talking about. I know you do. You know, many times in my life I've leaned into the bad feelings. You know, like let's just focus on the darkness all the time. Therefore, when it comes, you already expect it. Good times can't be taken away from me if you never have them. That's one defense. It's a very flawed strategy if your goal is to enjoy your life somehow, some way. But it is a strategy. One thing that occurred to me the other day, I had that feeling. I was sitting at my desk, my, my art table, uh, doing watercolors. It was a beautiful, sunny day. Feeling good. I just made a bunch of nice sauces. I don't know. Have I talked about that on the podcast? My sauce thing? That like once a week, I'll just spend like several hours just making a bunch of different sauces. Miso, ginger, lemon, tahini, garlic, yogurt with lime and cilantro, habanero, carrot, you know, that kind of stuff. I'll just make like five or six jars of different delicious sauces, dressings for the week. Then suddenly everything you make is delicious and amazing. Put it on anything, put it on a cracker, put it on rice, put it on pasta, make a salad, throw some of it on that, just to, you know, mix it up, do two, two, two different sauces on a thing. Life is suddenly good when you have a bunch of sauces. Highly recommended. So I was sitting there, like I was saying, I was sitting there reveling in my sauces, enjoying the act of painting, have had a day ahead of me, no work tonight. Everything's, I'm just free and clear, feeling good. Then suddenly that doom feeling came over me like, oh God, it's all going to come crashing down. Nobody should feel this contented in a world like ours. Some kind of crime is being committed by me enjoying myself this much feeling this good. I am guilty of pleasure. The punishment is coming soon. Then you start going through all the different possibilities. This could happen. That could happen. They could die. He could die. She could die. Rent could get raised. Disease could visit me. This could crash. This could end. This could be taken away. This could, uh, you know, in a heartbeat, flip an earthquake, you know, the big one, anytime. It's just like, boom. You ever think about that, though, when you think, like, what if the big one strikes? And you go, well, I know I'm safe now, 
because I'm thinking about it. Like it would, there's no way the big one would strike right while I'm thinking about it, right? So by thinking about it, maybe I'm saving myself. And by extension, I'm saving the entire Pacific Northwest from the Cascadian subduction zone or whatever it's called that we're in. You're welcome. There was no catastrophic earthquake this week because I was sitting at my desk thinking about it, worrying about it. But like I've talked about in the podcast, I've been practicing mindfulness, watching my thoughts, being aware of my thoughts, seeing them come, seeing them go. And when this one came, it occurred to me that I I let it go very quickly, this doom feeling, because things are good, things are going to be bad, that feeling. I checked it. I tested it. And one thing I thought about was this. When you're doing the work, like you're putting in the effort to make your life better, you're meditating, you're walking, you're eating right, you're reaching out to people, you're doing the things you like, you're taking care of business, you're keeping your affairs somewhat in order. Not that I don't have some outstanding accounts in my mind, but For the most part, you know, I'm doing the thing that needs to be done. And it occurred to me that when you're doing that kind of work, you're putting in that effort, because it is effort. You know, but when you're doing it, then suddenly I think to myself, well, yeah, things are going better. It's to be expected. This isn't some random crapshoot where life just deals you good times and then deals you bad times. It's like I'm making things better. Therefore, they're better. Therefore, I don't need to have some irrational fear that because things are good right now, they're going to all collapse. You know, you get ownership over the good times. Like if you're doing absolutely nothing to make your life more enjoyable, more centered, whatever you want to say, more meaningful, then yeah, it's reasonable to be a little worried Things are good, they might get bad. Things are bad, they might get good. You know, you're at the mercy of fate. And that can be disturbing. But when you're doing the work, you're putting in the effort, then it's like expected that things are going to be better. And I think to myself, well, what if I keep applying this kind of effort? Things might not just go from They might not go from good to bad. They might go from good to even better. And even if things, you know, outside of my control, you know, challenges come at me, if I'm doing this work, they're still going to be better. You know, even catastrophes will be better if I'm better equipped to deal with them. If I'm more present, more accepting of reality as it is. That's the thought I wanted to share with you today. Things might not go from good to bad. They might go from good to even better. How you like that for some posy core? I have been thinking this week about the late Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins. I've been surprised at how much I've been thinking about him and his untimely death. I'm sure you wouldn't be surprised to hear that I'm not a Foo Fighters fan. I really haven't ever listened to the band. I mean, other other than just in the 
air, the culture. They're so popular. Of course, you've heard many, many songs. I've heard many, many songs over the years, but uh, hadn't really paid much attention to them until Taylor Hawkins died. And I was really looking back at the Foo Fighters, like what they are now and what they've been to people and, and specifically him. Watch this video of his last, uh, the last show they did before he died, where he does Queen's um, Somebody to Love. He comes out from behind the drum riser and becomes the lead singer of the band for that cover. And it is just phenomenal. Like, the guy's got an incredible voice. I mean, obviously, he's an incredible drummer. He's Dave Grohl's hand-picked drummer. You know, he's madness behind the kid. And these Foo Fighters shows, they're like the Bruce Springsteen of now. They play for like three hours. This guy's on drums the whole time. Just, you know, mind... I'm super fascinated by drummers. They're just the most supernatural uh, talents in my mind. So, you know, I, I admire just the drumming. But then he gets up from behind the kit. And it's just, you know, just amazing. Amazing. The connection with the crowd, the, the connection built over decades of playing live. I don't know, it's just very touching. And then, of course, you think about him and Dave's friendship, their love for one another. You, know, you look through these videos, interviews, just the admiration they have for one another, the sheer joy they have in their friendship. I mean, you can't help but be moved by it. I've watched these interviews with him, Taylor, talking about, you know, his his musical journey. And, you know, you think when a person like that dies, it's like all of that learning, all that talent, history, studying, just suddenly we were just reflecting on it. It's so crazy. How fast that happens. Just boom, gone. But I don't know what my uh, comment is on this other than rest in peace, rest in power. I just thought I would mention it because I have been thinking about it. I've been surprised, like I said, how, many how much I have thought about the death of Taylor Hawkins. I was kind of surprised that Pete and I didn't bring it up in our conversation because Pete actually uh, was playing music with William Goldsmith, who was the drummer of Sunny Day Real Estate, the first Foo Fighters drummer, who's replaced, uh, Taylor Hawkins replaced William. And Pete and I played with William. I sang on a thing that Pete recorded with William after the Foo Fighters. That's an angle. Of course, I've been like, when I talked with Ian, uh, Ian McKay, I was I remember hearing about Dave when, I was a teenager and he was a teenager. Ian told me about Dave Grohl. I don't know him personally, but uh, he was a, um, also let's talk about going way back. Dave, Martin Sprouse to this day refers to Dave Grohl as David Grohl. He always says that David Grohl. And I asked him once, I said, why do you call him David Grohl? Like literally nobody calls him David Grohl. He goes, oh, because that's how he signed his name when we were pen pals as teenagers. It was always David Grohl. Dave used to write to uh, The Leading Edge, our fanzine, when he was a kid. And we were kids too. My heart goes out to Dave, all the foos, 
and all the millions of people who love that music and that band. Rest in peace, Taylor Hawkins. All right. And speaking of Pete Kramiak, I just mentioned him. Let's get to my conversation with the man. Please enjoy. Revel in. Take it in. Enjoy. Hold it. Hold space for my conversation with Pete Kramiak. Hello. Hello, Jason. Jason. Pete. Fuck, Jason. I think the levels sound pretty good. Sound good to me, man. Okay, good. We're going to roll with it then. Okay. Hey, Pete, how you doing? So I saw you the other day at the Jawbreaker show. You took me to Jawbreaker. Thank you. I did. That was very generous of me. Team Drift, Jawbox, Jawbreaker, the JBs. Yeah, we missed the comedian. Yeah, I've seen Kyle many times. I actually Shit. took I actually took a photo of him when I was doing stand up comedy backstage at Helium that became his primary promo f- <clears throat> his primary promo photo for about four years. Damn, like that's insane! It's a good photo. Yeah, I remember when you were you were capturing like all the kind of cool backstage black and white stuff, and then made sense. Yeah, you know, like when I'm doing comedy, uh, when I was doing comedy, there's just so much downtime that you're just hanging out. And I mean, I guess you're supposed to be writing and working on your set, but I was always busy. You're already gravitating and, towards your next interest that you get deeply into. My essential practice has always been visual art. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you just got back from a the Verbal Assault shows. Yes, I did. It happened finally. Um, shows. It was just two in uh, Rhode Island and New York. Um, and it was uh, pretty fucking fun. Tell me about it. Uh, Providence was like the most glorious high school reunion anyone could ever have. Um, I, I was having a hard time just being like in the moment because I had like 200 people that wanted to like talk to me and catch up. But at that time I was like, I still hadn't played the show yet. So I was like, wondering if I was going to have like pre-show diarrhea, which often used to happen to me like way back in the early days. And I was just, it was like, it was a main, like that was the main thing on my mind was like, am I going to shit my pants? And everyone, like some people had masks on and it was loud. So you couldn't really talk and really get into anything. And, um, and then, then all of a sudden after a 30 year hiatus of being a humble carpenter and dad, I'm like on stage at a hardcore show, people flying all over the place. Screaming full, lyrics. Full diaper. <laughs> well, that, that that was still my main concern, like that, and remembering what the fuck I was supposed to play. Um, so I was having a hard time just being like right in the moment. I would look out and just receive like joy through my eyeballs, and then I'd be quickly like, "Oh wait, what's coming up? What do I, what do I need to play? Am I going to shit my pants? Blah blah blah." <laughs> um. So that, that, but that that was that was as much fun as middle-aged man could maybe have and then um and then the new york show was uh it was sort of like the pressure was off and it was just like cracking jokes and playing your songs and enjoying them and did it make you wish you had a few more shows booked yeah i was already like kind of like ooh, you keep doing this but chris was pretty uh his voice was pretty non-existent by the end but um yeah that's kind of the hardest one age-wise yeah 
Yep. Yeah. I had the uh, fortunate experience of seeing two shows in two weeks. I went and saw Gang of Four with a Traeger. I saw him. I saw him after Jawbreaker too. Dude. Holy fuck. Amazing. I was like, ah, this might be good. And then by the second song, I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, this is good. Oh my God. And it, it just got better the whole night. Just like. And then they, you know, they finish with uh, what's the fucking song? Can't remember the name of the song. Their, their most popular song, and it was just like, I had, by, at that point, I had forgotten that they had a like most favorite song, and then they There's ended so with it, and I was like, song. yeah, yeah, they were fucking intense. Did he did he massacre some sort of appliance? Yeah, during microwave. Yeah, with microwave in out. Seattle too. Yeah, yeah, right up front. He's just there's just glass flying into the front row's faces. Well, well, the reason I brought it up um, was because his voice sounded it sounded exactly like perfect. it did in 1978. Yeah, yeah. Um, the guitar player, did you? That, that's David uh, Pasho, the guy from Slint, and oh. yeah. I was and wondering he who was, he was because I was standing right in front of him and watching he, him play guitar was oh my God. so fun, and the sounds he got out of that it, guitar. It sounded like exactly like the records, but better. But better. And then he yeah. would do these like crazy feedback things that were he, so artful and like tuneful. Yep. Like his ability to control the effects pedals and the feedback was just, it was like a painter or something. He, yeah. He, somebody with, yeah. That's after just performing where my main concern was not shitting my pants. And then seeing him, I was like, <laughs> okay, I got to brush up on a few basic uh, mastery of performance items. Because that, he, that was... That was fucking phenomenal. But the whole band, I mean, it was equally fun watching and they were yep. having such a great time. And yeah. like, oh my God, it was amazing. Yeah, that was that that was like another joyful old band where I was thrilled to be there. I'm sure in the introduction to this I will shout out um Suzanne Leff. Neff or Leff? Leff. Oh God, now I have to get that right. I gotta edit. I know. Don't try a second name. Just go with one name. You should know that by now. Ooh, thing. I know where I want to start. Okay. Uh, I was fascinated. Hang on a sec. Say that again. I know where I want to start. Okay. Um, we haven't talked about your your Amazon side gig, but I was fascinated by that. So you're like working in a gigantic rectangle that I assume has like a huge long space age conveyor belt coming in from one side and then splits off into other like tributaries and then you're at one of them receiving a little package and it it occurred to me that it must be very comforting to work inside one of your own paintings it's very um it is very painting i'm just looking for suzanne's last name oh jesus um you fucking idiot the but like i i've pictured someday you'll be like at the conveyor receiving some package but it won't be a package it'll be like a mystical portal with a wise octopus eyeball looking through you and you, and then you will become like a little space hag and then you will be in one of your paintings and that might be the end of your life really and then you'll be a painting on a wall it could happen there. Um, yeah, I definitely have had uh, moments where I've been looking around and I do like a imaginary projection onto my environment and have like all the boxes have strange symbols on them and the people all wearing elaborate sort of religious costumes 
and there's lighting of you know sort yeah. of purples and blue and banners of like psychedelic symbols coming from the ceiling and all the packages coming down are like strange octopuses and jellyfish yeah i think glass you, boxes i'm pretty sure when you were looking up suzanne's last name that you didn't quite catch my metaphor that you have pre- you've been predicting this moment in your paintings for the last 30 years you've been drawing gigantic space conveyor belts delivering packages through little space portals with little space hags picking them up but the package is an octopus eyeball yes i've had so that's my point is you've been fucking doing this for 30 years and now you're in it right well also you know my my, mind my mindfulness practice my meditation practice (laughs) and my the that i've been doing um so consistently these days Mm -hmm. um has put me in a place where i realized that yeah, that I've I felt that sense of like, oh, this is what it's like to be an awakened being because I'm here at Amazon doing a thing that like, if you had told me a year ago that I'd be doing this, I would have been so sad, you know, like, yeah. this, oh, that there's no way I'm going to end up at Amazon working in a sortation center. This It'll just be such a devastating indictment of my, my life choices. But then, then I'm actually <laughs> there doing yeah. it going, I am enjoying this so thoroughly and I'm getting so much out of this. And it feels like, oh, this is what I've always wanted to be like, just in the moment, yep. no judgment on reality, appreciating it for what it is exactly on its own terms. And I thought, oh, that's funny that this does look visually so similar to this vision I've had yeah. in my life. That's trippy. The, and I, I completely follow like when I finished college and got into carpentry full-time, um, like people are always asking me like, why'd you stop playing music? And I was like, well, I just got into carpentry and like all of a sudden my days were full doing like physical, repetitive physical activity that's building this thing all day. And it's I fucking love it. You know, like trying to sit around and like come up with another song, like, oh, it's fucking torture for me. Um, and then as, yeah, as soon as I had some kind of like, especially the repetitiveness there's just like building roofs is my favorite thing in the world just this like you know having the structure structure just appear in front of you as you're just you know working at one little piece at a time it's it's uh i think a large part of the human brain is pretty happy in that environment well you know most of the labor that humans have done for you know 150,000 years has been yep a lot of that kind of stuff like sitting around in a circle pulling yeah. little wheat kernels out of a stalk of grass, you know? Yeah. Together. There wasn't, there wasn't like a large part of the population. Like maybe I'll try to drop detuning. Yeah. Or I need to write copy for this shoe company. So yeah. Exactly. Come up with a way to make it seem. That was like two in dudes in the palace job. And then everyone right. else was like stacking rocks. Yeah. Cutting wood and stacking yeah. rocks. We're just rock stackers now. Yeah. No, I feel that big time. I mean, you're doing this this job i often i'm on it just thinking it's so weird that this is the perfect job for my life right now partly uh, because I, of that thing too that like the rest of my time i spend painting and which is again yeah. but i don't but painting's different than like there's zero pressure on me with it yeah it's, it's kind of it's, it's repetitious and process or are you standing while you're painting or sitting both yeah Watercolor, the, I'm seated, seated the whole time. Painting, I'm seated about 20%. I mean, oil painting, about 20% of the time. Yeah. Something about just all that walking, and it fucking makes you feel good. Dude, the, the Zon job, if I'm on there for a <laughs> five-hour shift, it's 25,000 steps. Dude, that, that's, yeah, that's how, yeah. 
I walked when I was in New York, I walked around each day and I was getting 25,000 steps. And that was, that was like 13 miles. It's crazy. I do that three days a week. I mean, or four. Oh. And it's like, I've lost like seven. I went to the doctor recently and, and I lost 18 pounds. Yeah. You look like a marathon runner right now on I Zoom. feel great physically, mentally. It's good for the brain. So what I'm trying to tell, and this is a theme in this podcast that I'm really trying to push is working for Amazon is wonderful <laughs> across the board. And their effects on the culture are just therapeutic, meditative. Yep. yep. It's complete aerobic. Yeah. Mentally. Yes. Mentally balancing. Yeah, yeah man. Jeff Bezos is basically my Dalai Lama. Yeah. What a great, great guy. He's a wonderful human being. I love everything about him and I support him and everyone. Globally. Yeah. Yep. But like I've said before, I think in the, the pod, like the sortation center I have heard is the chillest and coolest of those kinds of entry level jobs. But I don't know. I don't, it's a vast, vast operation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're cool. enjoying the sortation, the sort. I feel like Martin hasn't been on the podcast forever. It's been a while. I feel like it's been like nine years. I talked with him yesterday. You know, we did it. We did a conversation taped around Thanksgiving, and I don't know what it was that it didn't. I didn't ever get around to putting it together. I can't remember. That was like the depths of my winter depression. Was like that era. I was gonna say. I, the one of the good things about the pod is that I can monitor your your well being. And it's yeah, fine. I remember. Yeah, right around the holidays. Not surprisingly, there was a podcast. I can't. Oh, what was the woman's name from Smegma? Oh, Jackie. Jackie. I feel like it might have been that one or the next one, where like you were just talking slow, so slow that I actually sped up the podcast. I didn't know that was a feature. You did, and then and then a couple of weeks went by, and I played the next one, and I was like, "What the fuck's going on? Everything's fast." Yeah. Um, do that with pods, but I was like, you know, it, it was I, I could just sort of could hear it in your voice. Is that time yeah, of when year? I'm super depressed when I've been super yeah. depressed? It's like that's always the thing that I notice is this flat affectation and this slow speaking that I that I cannot not do. It's because you're fucking bummed and the world sucks and and you're feeling it and I get it. Yeah. yeah I'm so so happy to be on the other side of that winter depression. That was uh, that was the most severe depressive slump I've been in in five or six years at least. Damn. Sorry, man. No, I mean, looking back on it now, I'm like, oh God, I see that that was all part of a, I was working something out. Yeah. I, I, I really appreciate hearing about it all in the pod intros and just talking it through with, with other folks. Like everyone's fucking feeling that to some degrees these days. Um, so yeah, just out in the open and talking about it is, uh, I think it's a good thing. And yeah. I mean, it's just you, me, and a couple of our friends listening. So, yeah, we all know these, the deal. These, these, these episodes, minimum 300 listens now. Is that's Your mom is listening like 295 times? That's right. Mother's putting Jesus in her, her work to get my numbers up. So that is. This is no that, longer just you and I. We got, this is, a, this is a show. Yeah, I know that. I'm just teasing. This is like a uh, verbal assault. Re- How many people came out to the verbal assault reunion shows? Well, it was Martin and your mom and... Um, <laughs> couple other the parents pretty much so you know call it 300 300 Um, there's been fantastic guests lately there's always been fantastic guests but the um i just finished the errington one yesterday when i was on a long drive how was that it was fucking fantastic but the but 
at the end you're like oh they didn't even scratch on fucking the pizza gate or like the like free love sex cult that i want Arrington to start just so i can join or the like um but i i learned it i learned a ton that i didn't i didn't know about about Arrington. like all of a sudden i could see he was talking about how you know he's going to the one two three arts place in spokane as a kid and then it was a fucking go team show that kind of set him on fire. Didn't that make and he, sense? And it, yeah. And he was talking about like Toby Vale just playing like, you know, like the same beat over and over For and the like entire set. Calvin doing his like weird trancy shamanic thing. And then um, uh, there was one other p- takeaway. Oh, and he was also talking about like steel pole bathtub of all the bands that like, yeah. and I was like, I can see Arrington, you know, of all the bands in the late eighties, like I could see like, Arrington being like, this is what I'm into. Like, you know, kind of very, like I, f- I found them kind of, they're really interesting, but, uh, you know, like just kind of difficult. And like a lot of Arrington's music is very challenging and sometimes very difficult and, you know, not scripted for, for, you know, poppy stuff. But old time religion is kind of, I've always thought there was like a lung fishy, like a, and I don't even think Arrington like, ever heard lungfish until there was tons of old time religion music. Um, but it was that kind of like repetitive driving trance thing. And now Arrington and Dan Higgs are great friends and they live in the yeah, same town. So course. it's just like one of those, you know, things coming together moments. But yeah, I thought about uh, old time religion when I was watching gang of four too, because I was thinking about how like, yeah, like see that. The, the, the three shows I've seen in the past, like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, a year, were old time religion, the jawbreaker show with you, and then the uh, the gang of four show. And so yeah. I was sandwiched the two dance shows. I was yeah. like, I like going to shows where people dance. Yep. That's pretty cool. You know, I, more than standing and you know, it's not yep. it's just there's something about like as soon as Gang of Four started playing, the whole place was dancing. It was infectious, man. So awesome. Yeah. But yeah, that Arrington interview, uh it was one of those ones where I hadn't uh done a a pod interview in a very long time and being Arrington, an old, very old friend of mine, I was, I didn't prepare whatsoever. You know, he just came to my place yeah, and sat down no, no need. And, we, and, and it was so weird. Cause we, well, not weird, but not the, the way you want a pod where I like, we like talked for like three hours. Then I started recording <laughs> and, and then <laughs> I was like, God, what have we talked about? Did we talk? Was that before I started recording or after? Right. And then we ended up talking another like three hours. And then I had the thing at the end going, this is going to be the most nightmarish thing to edit. Like, huh. I don't know what's in there, what it was. Didn't, so, didn't catch that at all. Yeah. Well, good. Because I was like, that was one of those ones where I'm like, God, editing this thing is flipping nightmare. But um, ne- after, and then also I thought about, you know, yeah, with someone like him, it was definitely be wise to pick a couple subjects and go on those, you know, as opposed to just let's talk about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I could talk about the Arrington one all day. Um, um, the, the Hutch one was really great. Although I'm still just envious. I'm just like so envious of that person as a songwriter. If I could write one of those fucking thermal songs, I would just, he's so good. Give up. Um, yeah. Yeah, thermals and just his solo stuff. Have you heard that album "Suck Up the Oxygen"? I, I I need to I need to catch up on the solo stuff, dude. It's like a twenty minute album, like a group sex, you know, that kind of like mini. It's not an EP, but it's not a full, you know. But and it's just, but it's one of those ones where every song is just 
you you hear it once and you go, you're humming it for the rest of the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you make that happen? I feel like my, like my songwriting is like similar to my house building where it's like, like just takes like excavation and rebar and then concrete. And then you got to fucking do all this other shit. And it's just like hard work. And his songs always sound so effortless and just like they pop out of him. Yeah. And then, and then they stick in your head for fucking ever his process, but yeah. 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 It's funny sitting in his um, studio. It made me remember that I wrote a bunch of songs during pandemic besides my punk album, which I made, you know, my, my one minute long Instagram yep. songs, which you know, well, um, I also wrote like a whole bunch of songs in these old ones that I've had going around forever. And I'm really, really want to record those because it's, I think by far it's the best stuff I've ever made song wise, even though I don't have any like you know designs on playing or anything, but I was just like, God, I want to hear these for myself. You know, I just want yeah. to make these songs basically have a real drummer play because I programmed the drums on GarageBand, which is just not my strength. I I always find them uh, not funny, but um, like I, I just see you making the drum beats on GarageBand in my head. And you're like, oh, fuck it. I'll just do this. Do, 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 you know, back, beat, back, beat, back, beat, back, drum fill. So I, I, it always makes me kind of giggle just because you always do that on any solid surface as soon as yeah, you talk about right. any song. You know, I'm a big finger drummer. Yeah, yeah I got a, um, <laughs> an M audio, you know, little, uh, what do you call it? Digital key, you know, a MIDI keyboard thing that has like drum pads on it. So I do a combo of like sort of live <laughs> drumming on the pads and then you can go in and edit and yeah. take them apart and add things. Cut and steak, cut and steak, cut and steak, salt and pepper, cut and steak, cut and steak, cut and steak, salt and pepper. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah so who uh, did you see at the verbal assault shows that you hadn't seen since back in the day oh god it, it was more like all the people i didn't like all the messages i got afterwards it's I, I somehow miss seeing like hundreds of people um uh i weirdly spent the most time talking to out-of-town people that i hadn't met before um like they traveled so far, they were going to make sure they talked to me. And that, that was, uh, that was really cool. Well, who was, who um, came the furthest besides you? Uh, probably our friend Philippe from Chile who lives in Berlin now. Um, he came to both shows. Um, he's visited, I think all of us before in the past, he's like a really, really big, uh, thoughtful fan oh that's awesome and really good musician speaks did english ever, did verbal better than i do go to south america nope nope the furthest we got was i think the ukrainian border you never played in ukraine it was right on the border uh but in poland um although maybe maybe greece was further yeah greece is probably further well further from where but um yeah, that that show. I think that was Bialystok, although it might, it might have been a smaller town. Um, I remember that being one of the most alien places we'd ever played, just because it, it was just the furthest away from like normal Western culture at the time. What was the venue like? It was a. It seemed like a dark, musty goat barn or something um it was just, it was like dark and the air was really thick with like either like hay dust or 
smoke or like cooking moonshine or something. It was a, it was a really strange, strange show. Your girlfriend, Lily, she went to Ukraine about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And she said there were horse drawn, like donkey t- carts and stuff then. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Ukraine is my main focus. I actually finally started paying for YouTube so I could watch more videos without commercials. Um, you can do that. Uh, yeah. The commercials seem to be gone. Yeah. I finally I love the YouTube commercials though, because I love on my YouTube, I get the exact same commercial for every single video and it's for like yeah. a Verbo rental house <laughs> yeah. where my family yeah. and I can rent a ski lodge so we can yeah. all have time yeah. together without looking at our phones. Uh, yeah. They know me well, you know, that's the thing I commonly You're, do. I mean, who Verbo's more than you? Yeah, my two weeks at the A-frame with the family. Yeah, yeah. I'm building an A-frame right now. Is that right? Keeps coming up. And then Doug Ertis pointed out that there's a Circle Jerks lyric about having sex in an A-frame. Is that group sex, the song? Uh, yeah, it must be. I, but I, totally, I forgot that was like the first, my first uh, realization that A-frames were a thing. You know what? There's a painting, the painting that is on my easel right now, and I will put a photo of this somewhere just to draw people's attention to this tiny passage of our conversation. It prominently features an A-frame. That and doesn't surprise me. It's the only time I've ever painted an A-frame ever in any what the industry. fuck is going on with A-fr- A-frames are having a moment now as from you you know from Verbo there's lots of like matte black just scary looking but very sexy A-frames Martin's like good a- friend Karen who's a friend of mine as well she owns an A-frame near Lake Tahoe it's called the Cool House Cabin K-U-H-L it's a thing she Airbnb yeah yeah and it is a beautiful cabin it was almost it was like the fires this summer came Within, was Karen the one that arranged orgies back in the eighties? Ah, it must have been where the Circle Jerks. Never mind. She might have been an orgy. um, No, she wouldn't have been doing the eighties. Nineties would have been her orgy time um, organizing those. Maybe it was her parents that set up the Circle Jerks orgies. The orgies go way back in Karen's family's um, story. Yeah. Um. Yeah, when you when you post, if you post art, you should post one of your gigantic paintings that has the conveyor that splits off into little tributaries with a little space hag receiving a package, but the package is a portal. With I'll do it. I mean, I want to do a whole bunch of Amazon. You know, with art, it's like so often you know you're supposed to write about your art and think about it and have a story and be able to. Think oh about God! It. It's always so difficult because essentially uh, I, I would always just make stuff up to try and sound like I. When in reality, it's like, I just paint these weird ideas that come to me, and that's really what it is. Yeah, that's... You know, just visions I have, I try and capture something like that on with paint, and that's the whole thing, and I don't really have, like, a big, huge story. But now I can actually, like, say, I'm very inspired by this Amazon job that I have, and the idea <laughs> of, you know... Yeah. And it can be, like, an angle that somebody can actually understand. And then somehow, just because you've been unlocked by Amazon all of a sudden your paintings are going to become huge. And then there's going to be like a huge flood of Traeger method paintings. And then you're going to be shipping your own paintings from the Amazon center. And you're going to like get a herniated disc or something from your own art. <laughs> um, I was thinking that just, it just occurred to me just now that uh, another practice that I've, that it, way that the Amazon job has affected my life on a deep level is the, the nature of the packages coming towards me, like mm-hmm. 
that I now when I meditate, I often visualize my thoughts are those packages. They just come, they yeah. go, you scan it, you go, you scan the next one, you scan the next one. Yeah, it's like the sheep jumping over the fence dream in any cartoon. Yeah. You yeah. just don't you don't hold either package too long. You just you just move it through. It just keeps going. The pallet gets built. That pallet goes away. The next pallet begins. Yep. And it's it's another beautiful kind of aspect of that job. Yeah. Let me ask so, you this. I wanted yes. to, I wanted to get back to this question I had about the A frame. When you build something like an A, because to me, like a job like yours, you know just taking a piece of land and then having there be this beautiful eco-friendly house at the end of the process <laughs> is like somebody writing a novel. It's so mysterious to me. And I have like, there's a lot of art forms. I understand like doing an album. Yes. I understand that making a painting, of course, a podcast, etc. But like writing a novel, I go, how does anybody do that? It's, it's yeah. pure magic. And same thing with like building a house. When you build an A-frame for somebody, do you design the whole thing and how, do you do it with them or do they have a plan? The architect does it or <clears throat> just take his recipe and execute or hers? Hers. Yes. It's always, yeah, I, I mainly, so now I'm mainly working with um, uh, either my sister-in-law who's a really good architect or artisans group in Olympia, Washington, which is run by two badass younger than me women. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I, I'm so far away from my original idea. Like I would design and then build everything. And once I got into building, there wasn't much time to sit and design. And then after building my first house with my sister-in-law, she did so many subtle little things um, that I didn't want to do as a carpenter because they were kind of a pain in the ass. And then I did them and then I lived with them for like 11 years and I was like, God, thank God she made me do that. And I just, mm. by then I had built a lot of houses, but I had the experience of working with a, just a really good, smart designer. And I realized that I was very happy being a good builder and I wasn't an experienced designer. You know, I didn't know just to like push a tub three inches over, even if you had to do a zigzag in the wall. Um, and, and um, yeah, so I, I, my respect for really good designers and architects uh, skyrocketed and it all happened at the same time where I was just, you know, just working as hard as I could to keep, keep a building crew busy, you know, throughout a whole year repeatedly. Um, and then, and then my friend Rusa who designed God, probably, probably, probably on project seven now together. Um, she was, kind of a lot like my sister-in-law, just really smart, practical, thoughtful. And um, we worked on repeated uh, houses and commercial projects together and just kind of got in sync and became really fun. And um, so, yeah, to answer your question now, I'm almost always doing stuff that comes from an architect, but I usually get to chime in along the way and, uh, you know, steer steer people away from you know, really expensive ideas they can't afford or, you know, just structurally smart ideas. And then with the super insulation thing that we do, there's just a lot of, a lot of things you, you need to add into the plans to, um, to keep all that stuff intact. Um, but to me, it's, it, it came from like, you know, take, you know, building like the first house I built on my own. I, I had done, 
Um, the first, the first project start to finish I did was back when I was in DC, uh, probably in 1991. Um, and that, that was just being a helper on a two-story addition, but, you know, we worked on the foundation all the way up to the roof and then finished it. And then, um, and then I did some renovation stuff in DC and college. And then, yeah, like the week after I graduated from Evergreen, um, I built a shack with another more experienced carpenter uh, for my professor's ex-wife. Um, and then I wound up working with uh, this guy, Tibor Brewer, who was kind of my main mentor. Um, awesome guy. Yeah. In, intense, intense dude. Um, and really generous with his knowledge and like really overly helpful with me. Um, like he did, did a lot of stuff. I think a lot of folks wouldn't have done just cause you know, I'd be another builder in town that people would come to and maybe, you know, I'd take a job from him. Um, I never, I made sure I never did that. Uh, but I just realized like one of the main things he taught me was just to be really generous with, with all that and form a community rather than a bunch of competitors. And I've been trying to do that with my career too. I think I've been pretty good at it. Um, you, um, has you, have you had that role that Tibor had for you to some other people who are now on their own in Olympia area making houses? Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of, um, you know, coworkers and proteges and just younger dudes that, um, that worked with me for a couple of years and then, uh, and then went out on their own. Um, and there's now there's a bunch of times where, you know, I need help or they need help and, uh, you know, they can, they can jump back in and help out and it's, it's great. There's tons of work out there and, uh, um, yeah. And, and then, you know, I'm mainly focused on new houses. So all the remodel jobs, I can, I can point people towards them now and, um, yeah. And I can tell each year that goes by, they're getting way better and more experienced and, it's just, it's, yeah, it's been great. Um, but back to the novel metaphor, like I, I remember that moment where I had my first whole house to build on my own. Um, and yeah, it felt like trying to write a novel, but um, I just chopped it into little sections. And uh, also when you're working with a bank, with a bank loan, they chop it into little sections as well. So they come and inspect each little section. So it gets you sort of trained to, complete these 30 sections and you're done with the house. Um, and there's lots of little stuff in between, but um, it uh, quickly becomes like a, yeah, like 30 gigantic tasks you need to complete by the state kind of thing. And so it seems like it would get easier, but each one still feels like, Oh fuck, I'm two months behind on, you know, the same step I'm always behind on, which is always siding because I do it different every time and have to make all these custom metal flashings and I have to, de- you know, I can't do, I can't do those until I really design the thing and I'm too busy to design anything. So it's always do my do, sticking point. Do you do all the parts of a house, like the plumbing, electricity and all everything, or is, is, do you bring in people for sh- that stuff or? Yeah. All the main, all the things you listed, all the obvious subcontractor stuff. I have subcontractors, um, but we do a lot of foundation stuff and then we do all the carpentry and then we do a bunch of um, kind of our super energy 
uh, insulation tricks. And then we do like an outer rain screen thing and then siding. And then by then the plumbing and electrical and insulation is done inside. Drywaller is a subcontractor. And then we come back inside and do all the finish work. So we're, we're basically on site for the whole job. Did your crew paint the place at the end, like the aesthetic? No, and, and paint, painters. Well, we do. We do actually do a bunch of little paint stuff, and then clear finish wood on stuff. on wood stain stuff. So yeah, we do still have a hand in a lot of the little aspects of that. But yeah, plumbing, electrical, drywall, large concrete, painters. Uh, I can't think of the other ones. Saging and smudge sticking. Saging and smudge sticking. The shaman. Um, shaman comes in uh, honestly that's that's happened to at least two of my projects i would imagine um a little light witchcraft at the end yep totally support witchcraft um yeah yeah so we do yeah anything then left by the way is the name of the, it just came to me yeah yeah good one isn't that is the name of the woman the very kind trigger method listener who took me to ganga for it was so fun she oh was nice so, so nice and that is so fucking cool felt like she was an old friend you know somebody i'd never met she's a supporter of the pod went to gang of four together Susan that's so left. great isn't that interesting that my mind i was totally listening to you 100 percent, just engaged with what you're no, saying you and yet like there was a part of my brain that was going through a file cabinet yep going this that this that and i was like i could yeah, see it in your eyes what it was you're like Pete's rambling again. I'm gonna. But is it interesting? Amazing the way the brain can do that. That's that's so cool. Yeah. If if I would think any of the Trigger Method listeners at this point could easily hang out with you for several hours, and you would have plenty to talk about, and it wouldn't seem weird. No, I would. I would think. I think this is a. Uh, yeah, it's a select group. Obviously, I had a tangentially similar thing. I stayed in New York for a couple of days after the show and met up with a wing of my family that I didn't know existed. And we, we hung out. Yeah. The, their last name is different because they, you know, the family tree splits up and then they adopted, you know, they have a different last name, but the mom is the niece of my grandfather's uncle. And so they had, they had seen a comment on a Auschwitz Memorial Facebook page and uh, it was on Joseph Kramiak, who was my, I thought he was my grandfather's brother, but I had that wrong. It was my grandfather's cousin. And he was from Zakopane, Poland, the kind of mountainous town. And he was on like the Polish ski team and he was murdered in Auschwitz. Um, so the photo just came up one morning on my Facebook and I was like, holy shit. And I made a comment and they saw that and they were like, who's this guy? And anyways, long story short, we all met up in Brooklyn and um, yeah, it was uh, three generations, the mom, the daughter, who's probably in her 30s, and and her daughter. Um, and we, yeah, we just met up to get a beer. And then like, you know, seven hours later, I'm, you know, leaving their apartment drunk on wine, trying to get an Uber. How amazing. How great. Yeah. And it was like, it was an easy seven hours, like, you know, like, three hours with most of my friends i'm like oh god i need a nap but yeah it was it was really really cool that's awesome yeah talking yeah. with suzanne was funny because uh i would say something like well yeah my friend bought she's like yeah i know i listened to like <laughs> i was like oh yeah i don't you like know so much about me and my life and my friends and stuff yeah 
So I just asked her about herself. She just, it, she had an interesting story about how, like I was asking her like what punk scene she grew up in. And she was ta- saying very specifically, she was in rural Indiana huh. in like a college town, like the, um, I can't yeah, remember right now. Sarah Linda's from the, um, she's from Bloomington. Bloomington. Yeah. That's IU. This was, um, one, one of the other ones. Was a P. I want to say Purdue. Am I right? Maybe not. I have no fucking idea where Purdue is. I can't remember, but she was saying that like there was a punk scene around a band there called Walker. And she's like, literally it was like my friends Walker, just a local punk band that played in our town. And that (laughs) was what the scene revolved around was them because they were like the band, you know, out of town bands would come through and it'd see them. But I love that kind of just utterly specific. Yeah. Just, I got into punk through this one band in my town that were my friends. Yep. And I was thinking about that when you brought up the Arrington story and how he was talking about steel pole bathtub and how, which relates also to my experience with Jawbreaker, where I was thinking about how like I'd never really encountered their music in that era. You know, I mean, I, I, rem- I remember like their first album came out on Shredder when I worked at Alternative Tentacles. But you yeah. know, but the point being is just that like back then, sometimes you just wouldn't encounter a band. Yeah. They just wouldn't show up on your radar. And 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 then another one would and would become, especially when you're in like Spokane, Washington. Yeah. It's like whoever comes through is your sample of what bands yeah. are, you know. No, no means no is the other band where I was like, yes. of course Arrington was a huge no means no fan. Well, yeah. Anytime they played yep. a show in at your town, you would see them the next time because they were yeah. just so absolutely phenomenal live. Yeah. Jawbreaker we're I think we're pretty much the exact same age and Jawbreaker turns out or I think are, are the same age as us but as a band they seemed younger back yeah. then because they you know they just appeared later yeah um, and and I yeah I remember thinking yeah when I fr- would first see their singles or something I'd be like oh it's like a young you know I I, th- I think I always thought of them as like a young Gilman band yeah um the and then Gilman yeah yeah but I never saw them at Gilman. I never saw them anywhere. I never saw them on any bill. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, to be totally honest, I got into them much later. I got into Jetster Brazil and re- realized what a good fucking songwriter Blake was and then kind of had to go backwards. He was in Jets to Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. And by then his throat was all fixed. So it was like, that was a th- like whenever I would hear Jawbreaker really early on, I'd be like, like his voice, I think it was just thrashed fucking forever. He had like those weird, he had some oh, crazy yeah. throat thing and then no, yeah, the fixed. Yeah. And then his voice sounded fucking great. And yeah, I was but, uh, yeah, with I, his voice at that show because, you know, there's no other backup vocals. It's just his voice. And it, but it like, they're not knowing the songs at all. Like a yeah. chorus would start and I'd be like, whoa, it sounds like it's like two or three people singing. Yeah. He, but then I realized after the show, ended that there was a second guitarist that was behind the <laughs> columns that I did not we couldn't see, see it that yeah, no. there. and there were That's times we like there were sounds coming out of the guitar and I was watching his hands and I'm like I had that like too a weird, like you know that happened to me twice with there was there was two times where I was like what the fuck is going on because like tone there's like this high part guitar wise Blake has always been like solid like singer songwriter songs yeah. like lots of open chords and and there was a couple moments where I was like what fucking wizardry is he performing? Cause I had no idea there was a second guitar player behind the column of speakers. And then I saw a photo recently and there's like a, the guitar tech, the really tall guitar tech guy that would right. come out sometimes. I think he, 
I don't know if he was there the whole fucking for the whole first hour or just he would just chime in on a couple songs, but no, it's that, funny. that was funny. Um, yeah, it's so cool seeing Team Drash. Yeah, fucking yeah, Donna kind of getting possessed at the end was oh God, when she picked up the bass. She was playing guitar I know. Yeah. for most of it, and then she switched to bass. That was pretty goosebumpy. And, and it was like her bass. It was like the volume and everything on the bass seemed to just automatically go up double yeah and i was like god why wasn't she playing the bass the whole show <laughs> she's like the most amazing bass player yeah she's it's just natural well not natural I mean, my god she's been playing bass for 40 years yeah some people just have it yeah. though you know it's just like okay. like she's a great she's, yeah, guitar playing is great but pick up the bass and it's like a different animal she's one of the ultimate pacific northwest rock stars of all time yes dude screaming yeah. trees Dinosaur yeah. Jr., Melvin's, <laughs> yeah, Don Dresch, you know, yeah, she's been in all those uh, bands. Like, yeah, her LinkedIn profile is yeah. those bands and more. Holy and fuck. probably twenty others that you know she was in. Yeah, Doris was that her? I f- the I, I forget the like you know I I moved to the Northwest pretty late so right. the deeper Northwesty stuff. I, I might not digress on this spot. Oh. I've, I've reached out to her and she was like, Oh, I just don't know. And I, you know, I'll feel like my, I'm just going to sound dumb or something. I was like, dude. Yeah. Do it. I'll sound dumb. I have a, couldn't possibly. It's too interesting. I have, a, I have a potential nominee. I have to, I have to run it by him first, but um, one of my best friends from uh, college when I was in DC, Roman Ponos, uh, he, he turned into my just kind of housemate friend through my whole DC era uh, at college and then after college at, when we started our own group house. But he's a Ukrainian American, very you know, very strong Ukrainian cultural roots, and um, he's married to a Ukrainian woman. They had to get her mom out uh, the first week of the invasion. Um, I don't know if you'd be comfortable doing it or not, but just talking to someone that actually knows what they're fucking talking about, about what's happening would be cool. I've always been suspicious. He's been some sort of like spy on the good side of spying, but anytime he explains his job, I I don't get it. Like, what what do you do? Because he's often in Ukraine doing something. I have no fucking idea. He'll explain it to me. But then then a day later, I couldn't tell you what he does. And I think he wants it that way because maybe he's like uh, he might be like on like a URL pass with a big back backpack with a javelin missile to like go deliver it to right. some village. I have no fucking idea what Roman does. He's not working at the sortation center. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe he does in Ukraine. He like checks in for a couple shifts to like make a connection. To I'm sure they have sortation. They probably have sortation centers running in Mariupol. Yeah, yeah. That's the one thing that's running. Yeah. Like we made an exception. This is Amazon. It has to keep going. Yeah. Um, uh, that that's one thought I had, and then that kind of also describes how uh, uh, <laughs> my, you're, you're basically my news source now. I was like, oh, we have to get this Roman guy onto the Traeger Method podcast, so the world can. Uh, <laughs> it, and Roman was was he has a lot of uh, mutual friends with us, but. I don't think you've ever met him. 
Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell. I have a comedy yeah. friend actually who's Ukrainian. My friend Anatoly Brandt. Brandt he is a, uh, a comic in Portland. Hasn't really been working that much lately, but he's somebody that when I first started, I was very close with, and he's from Kiev. Oh, like legit from Kiev. Yes, yes, born and raised. Wow. Yeah, he moved here in the nineties. Wow. Yeah, that would be a good good guy to talk to. Actually, the the other Portland. Yeah, the the most in depth thing I've heard was uh, another Portland podcast, the um, "It Could Happen Here" podcast. It did. Or it could. Oh, the it it could. Happen it here. it could. Yeah, not it did. Robert Evans. Robert Evans. Yeah, he's There's two podcasts in Portland that are called. Yeah. Yeah, he he did. Yeah, he he did a lot of reporting from Ukraine during the Maidan uprising, so he has a lot of you know, Ukrainian uh, kind of real journalist friends. And he was talking to one of him. And it, I think it was like the day, it seemed like it was the day before the invasion. Um, and I'm, I've been meaning to check back. I'm sure he's had some more uh, interviews since then, but that, that was a good connection. Um, obviously I want to talk about Ukraine a lot, but. Talk about it. It's just fucked. <laughs> fucking crazy to see like you know just moms and children with all their pets you know just marching towards poland fucking crazy yeah yeah no i mean when you when you like sometimes i'll in my meditation i do a compassion meditation where i'll just sort of just picture people living you know if you had to fucking pick up right now with clem dog and to start you know. Oh God! It's the the shots with the people with the little dogs in there. Um, th- there's one shot of like a woman with her little dog wearing like a jumpsuit. Yeah, you know, and just going, oh, that's my girlfriend Lily. You know, just with our dog, like at a yep. train station, and him just shaking, and me just going, I got to stay here and start just yeah. working with the Kalashnikov. Uh, Mind bending. I mean, yeah, unfa- yeah, you just can't. The and then fucking- of course you you broaden it out to the world and go, you know, it's, yep. Ukraine is just Ukraine. Let's talk about Syria. Let's talk about Myanmar, wherever you know. Just people are, yep, the suffering of the world. Yeah, the just from coming from Noam Chomsky punk rock, like your brain immediately goes to that. Uh, um, but the, you know, just. I mean, be honest, like seeing a bunch of people that are dressed exactly like you carrying their cat, you, you just immediately kind of can't help but That's just the way people are wired, you know. And, it's like and so much of Ukraine is modern now. So right. it just looks like people are walking through an Ikea parking lot and you're like, what yes. the fuck? Yeah, we're just um, animals and we go, that's somebody like us. I can yeah. sure it's more. And, you know, we're also products of endless uh, <laughs> propaganda like everybody else. Yep we are our propaganda still seems half as bad as the russian propaganda the russian propaganda is just it's so total. stupid it's just so fucking stupid it's, yeah it's it's absolutely i mean of course the other thing that this whole situation makes you think about is the fact that vladimir putin's best you know a person who loves him more than anybody on earth was president for 4 years yeah that that's probably the more useful thing that we can talk about yeah. because it's yeah, that that my main fucking just thing I can't put together in my brain is how America is having this huge pull towards, towards basically Putinism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can it, look it, at life in Russia and go like, I want a piece of that. 
yeah, yeah, I want I want Putinism. And then you have Ukraine, which is just fucking, you know, finally got out from the you know the thumb of yeah. you know they actually have a you know a real democratically elected president that's not like a Putin crony. You know, they they had a they had a couple they've they've been trying to get here forever and then so they finally get there and that's that really is why Putin has to you know in his mind invade because he he just can't have a real free democracy on the border of Russia you know and you look at like Belarus and you know that's what has to be there to cushion yeah. it because he has to be able to say you know I'm attacking Ukraine to denazify it and have that you know have that story be intact in Russia and it's pretty fucking intact. You know, there's obviously like, you know, protests and people that aren't putting up with that shit, but it seems like, you know, just like in America, like a huge amount of people just go along with that story. So yeah, we're living in fucking America at a time where a huge portion is just gravitating towards Putin through Trump. And then you have a country right next door, that is being attacked by Putin. And then you have these supposed freedom loving Americans that can't fucking put two and two together. And, and uh, yeah, we think they're going to be on drives the me fucking insane. Of, yeah. I mean, anybody, these people who think they're going to be on the winning side of an authoritarian. <laughs> yeah. Fascist yeah. America, that it's going to be like, well, as long as they're going to just hurt the people I don't like, and it'll never bite me on the ass. It's just like, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And then, oh, and then when they finally realize Trump doesn't have their fucking interest at heart. They won't be able to vote him out. And oh wait, what did we do? Like that's you know that's the logical cycle in my brain. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I've been reading more about just Putin and how he was able to modernize Russia, but still, um, you know, give them all, you know, give a lot of people the trappings of capitalism. Uh, without any of the democracy. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, I've gone deep on videos mostly. Um, there's like, there was a front line um, called Putin's March to War or something. And they did <laughs> on YouTube, they have like the, the unedited full conversations with a ton of people who appeared on that. I think episode. I saw that one. Yeah. So there's all these, you know, hour long conversations with people who know vast amounts and can put it in perspective like really succinctly and i swear to god every single one of them ends with them going yeah this is the most dangerous person in the world with at the most dangerous point in his career ever and it's a complete mystery where this is going to go and that's every expert pretty much sums it up that way and you go oh my god (laughs) oh my god the um i've been telling everyone i talked to to watch that uh winter on fire documentary uh screamo metal band yeah yeah it's screamo metal um has nothing to do with ukraine at all yeah um but yeah it's and it's about winter on fire winter on fire i think Mm -hmm. it's on netflix it's uh and it's about it's not about now it's about the maidan uprising Mm -hmm. and i i had thought i was keeping up on that but i was just sort of reading headlines and and i didn't go that deep and this is like a really in-depth look about my take is, you know, a country that fucking finally got a glimpse of real democracy and then 
they tried to put in a, a Putin friendly dictator and they just, they just weren't going to fucking go backwards. And it's, it, it's fucking gnarly. Like, you know, I've been to lots of anti-war protests, but these are just people that are just walking into bullets just because they're not going to fucking go backwards. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's what led to getting a real democratically elected president. And then, you know, Putin immediately started the whole uh, Crimea thing just as sort of like a punishment, you know, just to show like, if you try to do this, this is what I'm going to do. And then that's what led to today, you know, the threat of having a NATO this is going to be anyone that knows what they're going, they're talking about is going to just shake their head at my little recap. But I think that's what's going on. Like the threat of having a democratically elected NATO member right next door. Oh yeah, they they can't have it. No, it's just example. I mean, his whole thing is just yeah. You know, they say he fears nothing more than people in the streets, and that's the thing he just cannot yeah. have in Russia. Yeah, and so this is basically a country that's people in the streets. You know, yep, it's kind of one of the most people in the streetsy cultures there is. Yeah, from what I hear through all these experts, they say, you know, it's part of the Ukrainian character yep. as a country is to be like, no, we're going to fucking die doing this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Ukrainians walking to the border with their cats are relatable. And then the Russian protesters getting their ass kicked at anti-war protests are also very relatable. Like, like I've been to those and, uh, but, uh, you know, with no fucking threat of being thrown in prison for 15 years oh yeah so those fucking people are really brave too um yeah i mean just and it's, living through portland through the past few years i mean we had unmarked police snatching people off the streets flashbang yep. grenades constantly every night people getting yeah. shot in the head with munitions you know um yep it's like yeah we weren't being people weren't being thrown in prison for 15 years but they're getting snatched off the street by plainclothes or unmarked police you know that happened yeah that fucking happened like a few blocks from you yeah in portland oh and, and our skies were filled with helicopters tracing every taking in everyone's cell phone data yeah all day long <laughs> they would just circle the city taking in everyone's cell phone data collecting it all and you just i mean i'd wake up in the morning and you just hear like fireworks in downtown and and flashbang grenades in the middle of the day yeah with you know helicopters grabbing your yeah. and then there'd be like a two-week smoke event from wildfires. Well, it's, and it's like, why are you depressed, Jason? I don't, I don't, this I'm not seeing it. I feel like, yeah, in some ways, uh, you know, we, yeah, Fuck. I've, I've been going through the processing. Yeah. This future for quite a while. And yeah. now I'm, I'm not future focused anymore. I'm this brings me home. full circle back to the beginning, talking about Arrington. I have to say that I'm yep. pro Aaron Hartman on the podcast thing. <laughs> and I fucking listened to Dan Har Dan Carlin Hardcore History, and that's kind of what keeps me fucking sane. Is just you're listening. To, you're referring to uh, Arrington talked about all these. Yeah, I think his quote was like, "All these fucking podcasts, Dan Carlin Hardcore History," and like literally, that is the one podcast that I just on my like panic walks. I just like you know listen to the downfall of Rome for. 24 hours like literally there'll be like 24 hours on the demise of rome i feel you and it'll it'll just like kind of put me back into the like perspective of like okay like human civilization has always just been a fucking cascading chorus of fucking clusterfucks you know and yeah you know and just bad you know it's just like arcs of 
terrible leadership that lead to just fucking genocide and ruin. Um, I've done the same thing. I went, I went super deep um, on the French revolution. Oh, super yeah. deep on uh, uh, the Mongols and Genghis Khan. With the hardcore history or different? No, no, just, just, oh. you know, documentaries back to back. You did two documentaries and you want to talk about the Mongols. I've done like probably 45 hours of Mongolians just fucking prancing around Eurasia, Europe, fucking all the way to Poland. Just let's, we've got to kill every single man, woman, and child in this entire culture. Yeah. And then stack the living corpses in a huge field and then make a floor on top of them and then have a banquet with our vanquished king so we can hear the dying screams of his people below him. Yes. Like, what the fuck? Like, that's insane. Just as a builder, like, how would I build a floor on a field of corpses, <laughs> I work of stacked corpses? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. I don't think you need hardcore history. It's a lot of time. But it's it, it, it really is helpful in just, like, reminding you that this isn't the first fucking shitty moment in history. No. Yeah. No, and even, you know, people, and I've many times have said this, that like, yeah, but this is different because this is environmental catastrophe and it's going to be a worldwide breakdown everywhere. And like, oh my God, yeah, you know, it's so different than any other time, blah, blah, blah. But then I'm like, you know, no, it's, it's not. Like if you're going through, you know, World War Dresden and that's the end of the fucking world and the end of yeah. all that exists <clears throat> and, you know... The, or just the killing fields of Eastern Europe, you know, I mean, you name it, obviously I could, yeah. could go on forever. Um, it, the, uh, the apocalypse is a, is a constant thing that is happening on earth at all times everywhere. And the suffering is never going to be greater or less at any other time, no matter like the level of suffering in hell on earth has always <laughs> been fairly consistent. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry to laugh. I just, uh, I just saw the, like, like what you just said, like pull the lever that's been like trying to be pulled in my brain where it's like, we should be podcasting about just finding your joy in the apocalypse. That's what this is. That's pretty much is. It's that is I'm the Traeger right method. Yeah. It's where, it's where I am at. It's the thing I have come to yeah. like to actually like b- live <laughs> instead of just intellectually no thinking like you only have now. Yep. You know, the future and the past are a story, blah, blah, but doesn't make your life any better. You still, life still sucks and the world's still coming to an end. Yep. But then I'm like, no, the difference between how I'm living now and that is I used to intellectually know that, but now I'm actually like on a moment to moment basis, bringing myself back to the reality that that's actually true. Like the future and the past are only ever ideas in your brain. And this moment is deathless and it is eternal exactly as it is and it couldn't be any other way than it it, exactly as it is so you can say it's terrible you can say it's hell on earth that it's the worst time of all time that's another idea in consciousness i feel like you and ian got to this point well he's like naturally there kind of yeah i know but but i think you like i've heard that exact run up from you before and i always listen really hard and my brain, like I can feel it, but my brain just doesn't let me to fully get there. And I remember Ian was Ian kind of gave his just do the work in front of you. 
kind of yeah. speech. Like, that's my thing. Do the work in front of you. And I, my brain is closer to that where I'm like, like, yeah, if I didn't have news, I would just, yeah, I'd be Ian like, and just do the work in front of me. That's kind of what I do. That's why I like construction. Like I have to just do eight to whatever hours of work a day. And I'm, I'm not in like my normal news cycle world. Um, and how you just put it like the, it's getting more and more familiar in my brain, but the timelessness and the deathlessness, I'm not quite there yet, but I keep saying it. I'll get it one day. You live forever now. Do I? You are living forever right now. There is no death. Death is, as long as you're alive, death is an upcoming event. Yes. In your imagination. The only place you can find a facsimile is by imagining it up till the moment you die. And then when you die, you cannot die because you're already dead. So on either side of the veil of death, you live forever. This is sort of how I felt at the first verbal assault show. How so? For 30 years, nothing. And then there's like three years of anticipation and then it started to ramp up at the end. And then all of a sudden I was like trying not to forget notes on stage with people like stage diving in front of me. You're in it. Was that my death? Felt like a death and a rebirth. Jesus Christ. That's interesting. Finding your joy during the apocalypse. It's a working title now. Well, the, the apocalypse also, you know, in the Greek, it, it means the unveiling, the lifting of the veil. That's what the actual term apocalypse means. Does it? I think I've talked about that on the podcast before. Yeah, maybe yeah the unveiling, the lifting of the veil. It's like the revealing <laughs> of the truth of the moment. I always think of William Blake's uh, have marriage of heaven and hell. Cause I'll look at the world and I go, dude, that's what we live in. Dude. I just looked up William Blake right before we started talking. What? Well, I, I my, all my William Blake conduit is through you. And then I, th- I think I was looking for like a, one of his famous paintings that always reminds me of some of your stuff. Um, so it was just on my screen a second ago. I, it, last judgment. it might've been one of those. Yeah. There was something I wanted to talk about that. I, th- I think it was the Amazon metaphor of the conduits coming down. And um, yeah, yeah, we might as well just focus on the apocalypse because I mean, we've both been obsessed with it since we were like little kids. Yeah. And now I'm post apocalyptic. And now there's a really very serious nuclear threat. Just it's back on the table. 100%. Yeah. Like America literally can't fly a plane past yeah. a border or that could trigger the third world war. And, and Putin would, I mean, why wouldn't he at this point just at least send one, you know, like yeah. he's fucking like, it's crazy. Well, that's another thing that's been very sobering listening to those extended conversations with the experts about it. They say, Oh yeah, yeah no, that's totally something he would do. Oh, he's yeah. Yeah. If the, the, gonna do it, it'd be him. Yeah. Yeah, the the line I heard that I keep thinking about was that he went from playing chess to playing poker. Um where you know, where it's just like an all in, you know, call the bluff kind of thing. Right. And instead of like a thoughtful thoughtful strategy, it, it definitely has crossed the line. One thing that I found interesting from my own perception that I realized was that, you know, I'm a very I consider myself a well informed person who goes to deep sources for knowledge of, you know, some idea of the world situation politically. Yeah. And 
I was so surprised when this happened because it, it, I did have an image of him that was very different than what I have of him now, which was very much like the master chess player, the utterly cynical, self-interested, kind of practical guy who's like back pulling the strings on so many things. And now I see him as like, oh, he's just another deranged, isolated maniac yep. trying to live out some fantasy he has about his place in history. Yeah. Yeah. He's like a skilled chess player that got rich and lazy and completely insane. And now is like chasing some, you know, legacy thing is, is how I feel about it. Um, there's a, I talked about this on my other podcast this week, the Dan O'Mahony podcast. Um, Romping but, Monday, which will be yeah. in the past now in the future. It is in the future now, but it will be in the past when you listen to this and it will be deathless. The, uh, there's a whole, um, it was actually This American Life, another podcast. They replayed a, a hour-long Putin thing about how Putin, there's a ton of evidence that Putin actually bombed those yes. apartment buildings himself. Right, false Which flight. set off the whole, right. set off the whole Chechnya? Chechen war, yeah. Yeah. Um, and cemented his place as the leader. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and that, you know, as, as someone who's, you know, looked deeply into a, a few suspicious buildings exploding, um, that that stuck out as something that I had forgotten about or never knew about. Um, you know, I just saw there was explosions in Russia and didn't really connect connect all that or keep up on the uh, idea that he started it. Yeah, so it seems pretty clear now. From what I see, that the, I mean the the concrete evidence is is pretty damning. Yeah, yeah. Um, I listened to one woman. I can't know. I don't know who what her name was, but she was talking about um, Chechnya, and she was saying that the the thing she sees the most parallels with in in Ukraine is Chechnya, and yep. that she's like, if you want to understand what he's probably going to do in Ukraine, all you have to do is study Chechnya. Looks like he's doing it, just pulverizing the capitals and, you know, just so he can just, yeah, probably so he can kind of get the credit for rebuilding it anew. And it's, it's, it's insane. It's fucking crazy. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it really is. So, um, I'll give one last media thing to look at. There's a vice thing that, Vice News thing that came out today. It was about a 20-minute thing with the female reporter on the ground, and she's like front lines, like deep front lines, like bombs going off near a little bit. And it, it's it's like the most like in-depth 20 minutes of like a human look at Ooh. the front lines. Like there's a young couple putting their kid on a fucking bus, oh. you know, and the kid's, you know, trying to be a good sport about it and it's just like you know we can barely fucking talk about it and then um yeah, and then I, like I, you know I, I mom's real... fucking trying to get her son's body ready for burial and shit it's just like and then they literally call a neighbor across the border and the neighbor across the border doesn't believe it you know they really believe that <laughs> that there's like a small operation trying to just get rid of the Nazis and liberate the Ukrainians. Yeah, I've seen so many stories of people talking with their relatives in Russia. Yeah. Just being like, no, 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 you're mistaken. It's like, no, 
There's bombs yeah. literally falling right now. They're leveling the city. No, no, you've got it wrong. It's actually. Yeah. Oh, it's so strange. Yeah, I've had to, I was going to say, I have to really limit and control my um, intake yeah. of that kind of stuff, you know. I'll, I'll get there right now. I just fucking, I just can't. Yeah, I always kind of overdo it and then get to a point where I just have to not look at the news for a couple of weeks just to get back to my life. Yeah. Yeah, it's a balance. I've always been that way. I remember at the end of uh, Rain Like the Sound of Trains, I just had that recurring realization like, God, I spent like four years intensely like studying and performing really dense songs about just the assholes of history. That's been like my whole focus. Right now I'm fucking miserable because that's all I do. Um, Another reason why construction seemed like a nice little detour. Oh yeah. 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 I found that, um, you know, I've been, I've been meditating 20 minutes a day and, but of course meditation is not just what you do when you're sitting there meditating. It's like, it's a practice that you can do all anytime. It's always available in just that sense of like moving yourself back to the moment, just coming back. And, and it's so simple, just recognizing thoughts and coming back to now the, in the body. God, that would help me. Just do it. I mean, five I, minutes a day, just sit and watch the minutes. thoughts. That's literally all you have to do. There's nothing else to it. You don't have to control the thoughts. You just, just watch them come and go. And then it just, it like, it, somehow just even a little bit makes you start doing it more, you know, like mm-hmm. you'll be out in the world and you'll have some little train of thoughts will come by and, and suddenly rock your world. And then you realize, Oh, those are thoughts in consciousness. Like that's mm-hmm. what those were, you know, mm-hmm. I will, I, I will, I will try. I will. Uh, what would, do you have a, uh, like what Avenue would you recommend? I've tried like a bunch of little, <laughs> there's, there's literally little I think attempts. The, the edit, the, I think the main thing to do is to not overthink it at all. Like there's nothing, there's no position you have to be in. You probably not laying down just because if you, if you're, you know, if you don't have a bad back or something, just to, just to sit up so, so that you're not like, I don't know, but you could lay down. It doesn't matter. I don't know why I'm even saying that. It's like literally just sit still. If you're doing a sitting meditation, you can do walking ones, but I would recommend sitting and then all you have to do, literally the only thing is just watch thoughts and don't attach to them. Don't just, just let them go and come and just notice thoughts. And then there's a million variations. You know, Sometimes I will name the thoughts. I'll go worried thought, music thought, to-do list thought. That's, a, thought. that's a butt getting numb thought. That's a I'm hungry thought. That's... I just thought mm. of my dog thought and snack, that's it. snack thought. Yeah. yeah. Snack thought, boring thought, anxious thought, wish I was up moving thought, relaxed thought, breathing thought, not, you know, just literally just there they are. Boom. One after another packages coming down the chute at the sortation center. Just scan this one. Move oh on my God. Envisioning the sortation it. center as a Jason Traeger painting might fucking get me there. You, you do the same thing. You can, you can imagine the sortation center. Oh, I, I know the big painting. I I should come grab that gigantic painting that I, I need. You got it, man. Just the sea hag, just the space hag looking at the octopus eye at the sortation center. 
I could stare at that and just collect on this shit. I got a ton of art available, man. Been you can make you can make little animated meditation videos. I've been talking. I've I talk with my friend Jay Shingle, who does music for a lot of stuff I do. He um, I I, I tasked him with making up some twenty minute things. I'm going to do some Traeger Method podcast guided meditations. We were just talking about that. I'm not kidding because yeah. I was just going like, hey, you know, part of like my issue with this podcast is sometimes I find that I get behind and then I'm like, oh God, I'm missing an episode. They don't all have to be conversations oh. with a guest. I can drop a meditation there maybe to the supporters. Interesting. But I want to make them free to everybody. But anyways, right. I'm going to do one. One's coming soon, a Traeger Method guided meditation. Yeah. Jumping jumping a little side, sideways here. All the, the um, podcast-wise... I feel like it's one of my jobs to like do podcast critiques. Yeah. All the, I really like the just bald face, like, you know, ask for support. I, like, I think that's really cool. It's a new thing for me to be. Just fucking put it out there. Yeah. I spend this much time doing this. Pitch in a couple of bucks. I feel well, as I a frequent guest, I, I feel like I can't be a supporter because I feel like, like I, it would be like a, a, what do you call it? When a, uh, Politician has uh oh right. you're, yeah you're yeah like a cronyism. Taewon Yu, Cynthia Connolly. There's a few other guests who are well. Don't um, make me look bad by talking Paris, about people that are pushing. Okay, okay. So I'm a little cheap, but sending money to Ukraine. Pod, to you supported the pod with that jawbreaker ticket. Yeah, take the, yeah. That was some serious support. Yeah, I saw it. Those tickets were, you know, fifty something. Not yeah. not five bucks. No. One thing I realized with that Jawbreaker show um, was that, like I mentioned, I think in the last episode, that I was so just paying attention to being out more than the show. I could feel that. I but could feel that you were. To me afterwards, that that's not weird at all, considering I haven't been in a room with more than a hundred people. Yeah in three years. And that was like 1800 people. And I was just like, so it didn't occur to me at the time that I'm like, this is so unusual for me. To yeah, be. There, I think I, I think I was having that realization about you right at the same time that you were having it. Cause I, I had a moment where I was like, Oh, I've, I've been out a lot the last couple of weeks. Cause the, the verbal salt shows. And, and so I felt like, Oh yeah, I, I go out and I go to shows now sometimes. And I felt like a veteran of going to shows cause I'd been to two that, you know, a few days before. And then I, I just, your body like language, I was like, Oh yeah, Jason hasn't been out of the house in a long time, you know, to a big, big event. And that was a lot of people. I was like, no, I've been to some small things and, and shows that were like two yeah. hundred people. No, maybe like my biggest comedy show I did was like 200 and then Arrington show was probably 200. Okay. And, but 200 and 1800 is a big difference. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that like after I got home and I was thinking, of, I thought about the show so much. And like, I remember thinking when I saw Team Dresh, it was literally like I was seeing them in a dream. I didn't really even put together in a weird way that I was actually seeing them on stage. It was more like, yeah, like uh-huh. talking about a dream. Like, and then Team Dresh came out and they played. And then I was looking around and uh, uh, it was like a dream. God. I, yeah. I know what you're saying. It's, it's almost like, everything we everything we've been seeing has been on our little devices for so long you know like music wise or like to see it live feels a little surreal yeah the the rhode island show i mean it felt surreal to me 
in a lot of ways, but there was just the visceral, like, holy shit, there's all these people right in front of me. Like it's, yeah, there was a three-dimensional thing that took a little getting used to. Yeah, I, I was looking at the audience more than I looked at the band, I think. just I was too. Moving I was, I was looking our, at the audience a lot. Our vantage point, just looking yeah. at like people's reactions. And I was very much like humans rejoicing in the sound of other humans. Yep. Yeah, I had a couple little pockets of like diehard fans that I kept I kept watching just because I knew they would go apeshit at different moments. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and it was interesting not knowing the music at all because the song would come on that meant nothing to me, and then the whole crowd would erupt and like, uh-huh. uh huh. Yeah, I, I I really don't know that album well at all. I know two songs that I really like, and then the whole encore were old songs. Um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Gang of Four yeah. was um, less people in the place. Um, had a openness that felt very, I don't know. It, it was really comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I was sitting in a balcony. I was down in front next to the stage. Yeah. Me too. Really incredible. Uh, yeah. A gang of four. I was like, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not staying far away. I want to get right up there. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think from the jawbreaker show sitting down on a balcony, I was like, yeah, I want to get in there. And it was, it was like, it was kind of like a, the world's funnest, like aerobics class. Yeah. Like everyone was, um, yeah, just fucking turned on. Dude, John King, yeah, singer of Gang of Four. Yeah, that he looks a lot in his late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, I, w- I kept doing the math. I'm like, he's got to be ten years older than me at least, at least. And then and I was like, I really need to like do yoga or some kind of aerobics because that guy is fucking. Well, and, kill and me. The presence and his like, you know, just getting the crowd going and then his just straight up dancing and so yep. animated and just covered and at the end just completely soaked head to toe. Just yep. It's like that is a flipping front. I mean, yeah. Tambourine, baseball bat, playing those things. Yeah, just did did was he just smashing tempered glass right in the front row? Yeah, but sure. like yeah, there was just like you know, exploding glass, like right in the faces of the front row people when he smashed the microwave with the bat. I was like, wow, this is old school. That is a lawsuit waiting to happen. Yeah. And I kept, I was like, I was like, he must've been out of this for a a long enough time where he just missed the whole safety era or maybe it wasn't apparent. Cause I was just like, I was like, this guy does not care about the safety rules. And, uh, yeah, that was very, uh, What's it? Research survival research labs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, that, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about. That was another realization from the uh, verbal salt thing. Was those are my first two shows as a parent. Like uh, you know, oh my god, I'd never yeah. been a yeah. Now I'm like an experienced parent, but I'm in a hardcore band with senior citizens, and uh, so I kept like bringing Chris like tea with honey in it, and then like after the Providence show. It, there was a storm and then it turned to ice. So I like followed, I had a rental car. So I like followed the verbal salt van all the way back to Newport, like right behind them. So if they had an accident, I'd be there. Oh, <laughs> I'd be there. I was like, Oh my God, what am I doing? So awesome. I know. So you think you guys will play more shows or was that it? Yeah. 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 We're going to play some more shows. Oh, you already have them planned. Uh, yeah. Maybe um, a spurt in September and October. September, maybe a week on the East Coast, and then September, I mean, October, maybe a week on the West Coast. You guys can stay at my mom's house. 
Yeah, that's where I learned how to make my own quesadillas. So, <laughs> is that true? Yeah, the um, you discovered the quesadilla at our yeah the food scene in 1986 at your mom's house. Yeah, I think you showed me how to just like heat it right on. She had the old electric coil stovetop, mm-hmm. and I think you would just heat the case the tortilla right on the, the on the 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 electric uh, elements. Yeah, and then you would just put butter and brown sugar on it, and so like when. When no one else was in the house, I would just run in and make like three of them and be like, oh my God, these are fucking good. Those are like my churro style. Yeah. Did we yeah. go out to Mexican? Did we go to Juanita's when you were there? Yeah, you, you would have brought us to your favorite. Yeah. Juanita's yep. on the Pacific Coast Highway in Lucadia, California, 1985. Yeah. Literally they had the best food up for our high school. Age. Was that the, the tiny little place in the house? Yes. Yeah. And they had like magical, like fresh fish tacos. And- oh, God. Yeah, to this day, that's still like, I mean, really, that was my first, that that was kind of my first Mexican well, like, you know, mission real, burritos, you know, like, yeah, we would which have, is a completely different type of food. Yeah, because we, we came down. So we would have had burritos in the mission. And then, but that, that little place in, was it in La Jolla or was it in Lucadia. Encinitas? It was in Lucadia. Yeah, that little place. Yeah. After you see me the first time, I think I would just go by myself if no one else was coming because it was those fish fucking tacos were the best things I'd ever eaten. Walk from my house, yeah, fifteen oh. minute. Yeah, that was. Uh, oh my god, the their quesadillas with guacamole, sour cream, cheese, Jesus, the richest muscle. Fucking, that was like a oh. huge burrito style one, cut so, in half or folded in half. I'm so fucking quarters. hungry right now. Now, the San Diego bean burrito, the small or all their burritos in San Diego back then were like that small. You'd buy like two of them. So different than the San, San Francisco burritos are completely unique. Yeah. That steamed Pancho Villa burrito. Yeah. This, you got to so steam. Weird. Yeah. Having an unsteamed burrito after that is, it's like, you just can't even do it. Yeah. I don't know. I like them both. I like the Mexican. I love the San Diego. I, I like them all. Yeah. I do love them all. One thing that's so funny about San Diego is that, uh, that California burrito, the one with French fries in it is like the, it's called the California burrito and it's like a, I don't know, meat burrito with French fries. And that is like the burrito of San Diego that was invented in San Diego. And I was reading about this and I'm going, what are they talking about? That's not a thing. That, I, I've never I heard of I realized this. it's a tradition that started after I lived there. So it's, it's now oh. been codified for 25 years. It's not a tradition. That's just like one place ran a special on it's French fry burrito. Yeah. They had too many French fries one day and then it like, Gain some legs, and now it's that makes you feel old, though. Where you're like, I lived pre. Yeah, you don't even you've never even had one of San Diego's main burritos. No, that was not a thing back then. It was the little burrito, the little San Diego style. You know, what do you call it? Albertos, the Erdos, (laughs) all the Erdos. Obertos. Anyways, Um, (laughs) what was I going to say? Oh, one thing I was thinking uh, was just that William Blake thing that you brought up. Did I ever tell you the story of how I discovered William Blake? You have, but I think you and I had both eaten mushrooms. Um, so I strangely, I, I maybe not. Cause I, if we probably, I probably would remember it if we had eaten mushrooms and then you told me, I mean, you, you've given me a lot of William Blake pep talks mainly back in your early Olympia days. Well, I was like, thinking I, when I wrote it down, when we were talking just that, that, thing about the turkey story because it's one of those stories i've never told on the podcast and i just love it because it's 
I don't know, just such an amazing way to inter- to be introduced to William Blake. I was in Los Angeles with um I was in Los Angeles with Star and we went to Hennessy and Ingalls bookstore. Well, wait a sec. Okay, no, never mind. I don't know. Maybe I don't even need to tell the story. Maybe I can save it. Or should you want to hear it? Well, I kind of want to hear it now, but I am fucking starving after talking about the burritos, and now you're going to talk about turkeys, and I'm just like... Okay, fuck it. No, oh, let's, let's, so fucking let's see. Okay, we just did an hour and a half. I want to edit oh, Jesus. And I'm, I'm let, one thing I do not want to do is get in this habit of talking way longer than the thing's going to actually be. Oh, no, I'm hanging up on you as soon as I can. I'm going to go so have a we, snack. We just did. I think we might have even done... Yeah, we did an hour and a half perfectly. Okay, yeah. so that's fine. All right, so so yeah, let's just let's just get lunch. We'll save that for another time. Yeah, I'm through with you. I want okay. a burrito. Okay. Okay. Pete, it's been so good to talk to you. You too. It's yeah. been really good. Yeah. Just awesome. Yeah. What yeah, do you yeah. have for lunch? Uh, whatever Mary took off and left me a bunch of weird little containers. It's kind of like feeding the barnyard animal at the end of the week. Like, yeah. it's your job to eat all these things. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm into it. Right on. We'll have a good lunch okay. and I'll talk to you soon and we'll okay. get this thing up in a week or so. Okay. Love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye.